Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 76. For those of you using the Black Pew Bible, Psalm 76 can be found on page 456. As a church, we're committed as a practice to let God's word set the agenda for our worship gatherings. And so we pick books of the Bible. We work through them one chapter section at a time. And we have chosen book three of the Psalms for this season of our church life. And we have started this in the month of July and we'll continue through the fall. And this series of Psalms are collected together thematically. They are not random accident songs on a playlist where you hit shuffle and you don't know what song is going to come next. That's not book three of the Psalms. So for those of you that are new today or need, just for the sake of good teaching repetition reminder, I'm going to, in this introduction, before reading Psalm 76, very briefly summarize where we've been in book three. It's not too many Psalms. If I were to give a little heading for this introduction, it would be this question. Oh God, oh God, where have you been? Psalm 73, if you actually turn your Bibles one page over, you'll see that verses 1 through 3 set the stage for book 3. Intentionally, I believe Psalm 73 is first in this order and collection of psalms. Truly God is good to Israel, verse 1 says, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is a general personal lament of a church leader, worshiper in the old covenant people of God in the nation of Israel. Asaph is his name, as you see at the top of each of these psalms. That's why they're collected together. If you read carefully, which I'm not going to do for you today, but if you read carefully verses 4 all the way down to 16, you'll see specifically what he means about when he says in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Notice the question that they are throwing out in verse 11 specifically. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The boastful, proud, arrogant that are prospering are challenging worshipers to truly have faith in their God. And so that's why Psalm 74, if you turn your eyes over to verse 1, begins with a question. Oh God, why? Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And the specific occasion, if you're wondering, the prosperity of the wicked, well, that could be general. But now we know because of Psalm 74, the very specific occurrence historically in the life of Israel. Look at verse 4. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They have burned, verse 7 says, the sanctuary of the Lord. It has been burned in flames and they have profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. Asaph loves God, trusts him, believes his promises. But he goes into the sanctuary and there is no sanctuary. It's burned to the ground. It's ruined. Destruction is everywhere. Where are you, God? 
verse 10 and 11 say. Look at chapter 74, Psalm 74, 10 and 11. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Do something, God. Where are you, God? Where have you been? And for those of you that were here last week, Psalm 75 and Psalm 76 together answer the question, Oh God, oh God, where have you been? Psalm 75 says specifically that God has an appointed day of judgment. Verse 2, I have set the time that I will appoint and judge, and the earth will totter. It will melt all of its inhabitants. And so that's what we heard last week. Where we pick ourselves up is the continued answer of God to the question, God, I'm looking around at your sanctuary, your temple, your place of worship, and you look weak, impotent. You look like you don't care. So before I read the text, is it possible? Is it likely? Some of you in this room have personal, individual, broader observations of this world either about your own life or the general flow of history where you sometimes are tempted to ask, God, I see more ruin than I see remembrance. I see more destruction than I do deliverance. That is the occasion for which you would want to use Psalm 76 to bolster your faith. If you're wondering, when should I turn to Psalm 76? Whenever you're wondering, where are you, God? Where have you been? I think it's fittingly here in the Psalter to answer the question. So let's read it in light of that. Whether it's a personal individual struggle, whether it's a national crisis, whether it's a cosmic collapse of the economy. Where are you, God? I'm struggling with faith. I'm struggling to trust. Psalm 76 is to help you trust. Let's read the text together. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. And this ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. My prayer for each of us as we hear this message, 
is that you would know the answer, that where God has been is fulfilling his covenant promise to rescue, redeem, and restore his people. It's where he's always been. It's where he will be. He's done it in the past. He's doing it now in the present. Even if you can't see it, we walk by faith and not by sight. And he will do it in the future. You can bank on it. That's my prayer for us. Does that sound good? Amen? I'm not a poem writer, but I wrote one. And I think it's fitting. We're in the Psalms. It's poetry. And I honestly did not spend a lot of time on this, but if you would like to memorably remember what Psalm 76 is about, let's begin with our opening introduction. O God, O God, where have you been? Answer from verses 1 and 2. I am the Lion of Judah, the one in the den. Where have you been? I'm the Lion of Judah, the one in the den. O God, O God, where have you been? I am the Lion of Judah, the one in the den. I will rise with a roar and I will defend until every knee bows and every back bends. That's our psalm in a nutshell. The previous psalms have asked the question in the context of destruction and discouragement. Where are you, God? Psalm 75 says, I have promised a day of deliverance. Psalm 76 says, and when I come, I will be like a lion. I will roar with a shout. I will rebuke the enemies and every knee will bow and tongue will confess. That's, I think, what Psalm 76 is trying to say. I think it sounds prettier to say it this way. Oh God, oh God, where have you been? I'm the lion of Judah, the one in the den. I will rise with a roar and I will defend until every knee bows and every back bends. So let's work through the psalm in that order. We've already explained how the previous psalms have posed the question and that God's word is giving the answer. So first, point one, verses one and two. I am the lion of Judah. I am the one in the den. If any of you looked at your handout, you might have been wondering, why in the world is this sermon called The Lion King? A song about the Lion King. And the answer comes from verses 1 and 2. Look carefully and closely with me. Notice in, the word in. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. In, 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 in. Verses 1 and 2 is trying to tell you that God has been questioned previously. Where are you? I am in Judah. I am in Israel. I am in Zion. So now, reread these verses in light of our historical context, our author, our situation. In Judah, The temple is destroyed. In Judah, in Israel, the Assyrian and Babylonian army has come in and wiped out the people of God. Only a small remnant remains. In there? God, you are in there? And that's his answer. I am in even the mess. I am even in the allowed destruction. I am in it. My presence has not gone away. I am there. So the lion metaphor comes from our 
unfortunate English translation that doesn't take us to the lion imagery, but it becomes clearer as I walk through the text with you. Verse 2 could be translated, his liar, his lion's den has been established in Salem. His den is in Zion. Both of these words are used elsewhere in the Old Testament to talk about a lion's den in verse 2. So I'm not making up Lion King to be cute. I'm taking it straight from my time studying the text. And several arguments are made that there is a lioness-like metaphor used throughout our psalm. And here's the first instance of it. Do you see now the answer? I am the lion of Judah. I'm the one in the den. God's place and habitation looks desolate. But in reality, there is a crouching lion that is ready to rise and roar. They can't see it, though. The number of instances that we could walk through as a church together, one-on-one or collectively as a group, where you specifically might need to apply this concept. You look out in the world and see sin, chaos, destruction, defeat, and you think God is not there. This psalm begins with, I'm in it. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I am like a lion ready to roar. And I wonder, for some of you right now, That's the very specific encouragement you need as you look at your individual sinning, as you look at your personal family, as you look at our nation as a whole, as you hear about the decline of Christianity in America, as David pointed out two weeks ago. When churches close, God, where are you in these horrible, devastating, legitimate reasons to weep and moan and lament? Where are you? It's not going anywhere. In fact, what we will find by the end of our psalm is that even the very things to you that seem like God is absent will be the very means he uses to display his power and presence. This is what he does. So many different commentators try and figure out, is there a specific battle that's being referred to where this lion roars and defeats the armies that are going to be referred to in the middle half of our psalm. And I don't think that we can really pin it on one specific occasion. I tried my best. I think perhaps 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19 would be good reading for this afternoon. When King Sennacherib of the Assyrian army mocked God. So if you wanted kind of an illustrative Bible story to give you some context, read 2 Kings 18 and 19 and see how King Hezekiah of Israel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord defeated and wiped out 180,000 soldiers, and Israel did nothing. I don't necessarily know if that's the story, because what's so great about our psalm is that it's so general, and it could touch so many different stories, and it's so typical that this is the way God works, that we can say, I think, emphatically as 21st century worshipers here in the New Covenant era, this is what God does. When things around you, in the world, in your life, look like they are in ruins, he is working redemption. He's in it. I think it's important for us to remember that when you're wondering, where has he been? He's the Lion of Judah. He's the one in the den. That's point one. Remember, 
Look to the promises of God, even when your present circumstances seem to suggest God's absence. Point two, we're going to look at verses three to 11 here. O God, O God, where have you been? I am the Lion of Judah, the one in the den. I will rise with a roar and I will defend. Notice what happens when God's presence is in some place. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. There, in there, in that place, in Jerusalem, in Judah, in Salem, which is another way of saying Jerusalem, just in case you were wondering. That's what Salem means, Zion. It's Hebrew poetry, so it's saying the same thing multiple times. God's presence is with his people in the place that he determined. And even though it looks like God's absent, he's saying, no, in there, in that place, I have in the past and I will in the future break the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. This is beautiful. When God's presence comes, even in all of this fury of his lioness-like roaring, he puts war to end, does not increase violence. The God of the Bible is not a bloodthirsty, angry, vengeful, grumpy grandpa up in heaven that's just waiting to lash out thunderbolts from heaven. The God of the Bible is interested in ending violence once and for all. If you'd like to know how he does that, then you will need to pay attention to the entire sermon. But you need to realize that in verse 3, it is telling us that God's presence in the place that he has promised is a place where they can expect the end of the weapons of war, where violence is no more. Verse 4 says, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. And this, I believe, is our second and most obvious Reason why we should think about this as a song about the Lion King. More glorious, more majestic. It's, it's the word glorious as shiny are you. You're like this resplendent light God. You are more majestic, more powerful than all the mountains full of prey. And this is where I think, again, the lion imagery comes in real strong. The mountains full of prey. It's as if the mountains, representing either nations or peoples, or they are representing just God's ability to be the mountain-esque, lioness conqueror. He's glorious, more majestic than any of the powers at play in the world. And so then they're laid out specifically. Keep reading in verse 5 and verse 6. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil, they slept into their sleep is a very literal translation of verse 5 in the middle there. They sank into sleep. They, they slept asleep. They double-sleeped, meaning they died. They slept their last sleep. And all the men of war were unable to even use their hands. This is where that illustration from First Kings, or sorry, Second Kings chapter 19 comes in. When the angel of the Lord comes in, every single soldier and Sennacherib's army is sleeping. And before they can even wake up and grab an arrow or a sword or a shield, the angel of the Lord makes them sleep their last sleep. If you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings 19, not 1st, 2 Kings 19, you'll see just with vivid illustration 
an example, at least, of what our psalm is referring to. When God in the past came through and destroyed God's enemies and did so in a way where God's people did not fight, it was the angel who fought for them. And so the stout-hearted, the proud, the arrogant, the boastful King Sennacherib, who came just a day before he was slaughtered and died, and his army was defeated. He was telling all of the people of Israel why they should bow the knee to him. His great victories over Samaria, his great victories over all of the peoples in the foreign lands of the day. And these men of war, as mighty as they were, the 180,000 of them, and whatever other examples you could use from Scripture, they were even unable to use their strong hands. But notice verse 6. At your rebuke. One translator even translated this, at your loud roar. And there's our third and final image of God as the Lion King. The warrior who will defeat his enemies with, what's the answer, church? His word. Notice that it's not the weapon of his fist or his might. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the rider and the horse lay stunned. O embassy church, please be reminded how important it is for us to do our battles in marriage, our battles in politics, in community life, in our homes, with our children, not with force, not with scare tactics, not with fear, but with God's word. Win them with his word. God's victory over these enemies, even the rider and his horse, whether it's the rider on the horse or the horse, they both lay stunned at your rebuke. And in case you're thinking I'm overstating the case, this psalm repeats this theme in the next section. Follow along, verses 7, 8, and 9. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused from the heavens? You, and then here's God's word, uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God rose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. O God, O God, where have you been? I am the lion of Judah, the one in the den. I will rise with a roar. I will utter judgment when I rise. I will establish judgment through my word, and I will defend the cause of the widow, the poor, and the humble. My people will be saved and the proud will be judged. From the heavens, your word spoke and uttered a judgment, and the entire earth feared and was still. Do you want a nice New Testament cross-reference for this picture? Read Romans chapter 3. After the long list of explanations that Paul gives for why every single one of us on the earth has no Ability to stand before the throne of God with some kind of excuse. Oh, but, but. Instead, Romans 3 says, every mouth will be silenced and stopped. What excuse? What situation is God unaware of to help explain why you sinned the way you did? The answer is, there is no one who will be able to stand 
on their own righteousness, by their own good works, before the throne of God. When his anger is roused, the answer is emphatically, no one will be able to stand. The entire earth was still. They were silenced. This is what I mean by the lion rises with a roar and he will defend. Notice the way that in verse 9, just like we saw in last week's psalm, God's coming in judgment is not merely to punish, but it is also to save. The very same act of judgment brings about salvation for God's people. It makes you and I forced to answer the question, will I be judged or will I be saved when that judgment comes? And for that answer, we need to realize the last and final paragraph The last little moment of this sermon. Oh God, oh God, where have you been? In the line of Judah, the one in the den, I will rise with a roar and I will defend until every knee bows and every back bends. Verses 10, 11, and 12 tell us that every single knee will bow and tongue confess that this God is the Lord to be feared and worshipped. Verse 10, surely... The wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Not only have we seen in our psalm that God is there even when it seems he's not, that he will rise, he has in the past, and he will again defend his people and bring about judgment through his word, and that when he does so, it will both execute justice for those who have not repented of sin, for those who have not embraced the Lord God as their own, but it will also bring about salvation to the humble of the earth. Verse 10 tells us precisely how God goes about doing this. How? not just through his word, by allowing humans to rage against his son. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Did you all hear Sybil read that text? It's in your order of service, Psalm 2. Add that to your afternoon reading list. 2 Kings 18 and 19, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? against the Lord and his anointed. This is one of the most foundational, important psalms in all of the Bible because as you read the rest of the psalms, we keep going back to Psalm 2. Keep going back to the promise that I have set my son on Mount Zion through the tribe of Judah, my anointed one, my Mashiach in Hebrew, you would say, my Messiah, we would say in English. My anointed Messiah is on the mountain of Judah, the lion and tribe of Judah. That one I have put there. And every nation, every king, every prince should fear him. Kiss the sun. There will be no refuge from the sun. There will only be refuge found in the sun. That's Psalm 2. Our psalm is referring back to Psalm 2. It's a callback. It's telling you, make your vows to your God, believers. And if you're not a Christian, 
Verse 11 says, perform them and let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Even the princes will be cut off. They will be put to death. And all of them should fear every single king and prince of the earth. The wrath of man will rage against God. But that wrath will be used as a garment for him to display his power over every human ruler. That's what verse 10 means. It's a weird text, actually. Read it again. Verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. I think it's a faithful translation. It's just poetry, so it's hard to understand on the surface. Surely, certainly, the wrath of man will result in praise. The raging against God's anointed, his people. When people persecute God by persecuting his people, it will just be a foil into his already determined plans for how that was going to work out in the, at the end anyway. The best example of this, by the way, is when the early Christians in Acts chapter 4 quote in prayer Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed? Because it was your plan that has determined that Pontius Pilate and King Herod would put Jesus Christ to death. Do you realize that early Christians understood this theme, that the nations would rage, the wrath of man would result in the praise of God because they would be accomplishing unknowingly the very plans of God. Verse 10 is telling us that whatever wrath you see on this earth, whatever violence you observe on the news, whatever horrible things that you experience, you can be sure that God will wear it like a belt for his ultimate purposes of accomplishing redemption and salvation, which is why we can go back to the very beginning. Where are you, God? Where have you been? I'm in this. I'm actually going to wear this. When all is said and done and we pull back, you're going to see the glorious garment of everything that's happened in human history as a part of the plan of God to accomplish the salvation of God through saving the humble and punishing the wicked. Every knee will bow and every back will bend down as he defends his cause, as he delivers his promise. Believers, we should trust this God then. Members of Embassy Church, this is just another regular, ordinary reminder. God is faithful even when it seems like he's not. Is there anything that's right now in your life causing you to question and doubt? God's not good right now. I know he's supposed to be good, but I don't like what he's doing in my life. Just give him more time. That's, that's kind of too flippant to say from a stage, but I know that's the true answer. If you give it enough time, let's say eternity, You'll see. You'll see. It'll work out. Your life is like a vapor. It's going to come and go. Before you know it, you're going to be 70 if you're lucky. So, trust him. This is not a necessarily specific psalm for a specific occasion of one time when God did this. This is a theme. This is what God does. He takes the worst crummy things of the world, even your worst crummy things of the world, and redeems them and restores them. 
But is he, is he doing it this way, Pastor? I don't necessarily know all those answers. I can't tell you every specific connecting of the dot. Give it enough time, eventually you will see that God's good. Surely God is good in Israel. But sometimes when I look out, it seems like the wicked are prospering and destruction is everywhere. Where are you, God? Where have you been? I'm in it. I'm there. I'm actually a lion. It looks like a bunch of rubble, but I am a roaring lion ready to be roused. And there's an appointed day of judgment when my roar, my word, will bring forth judgment and salvation. How is it not that when you're reading this as a Christian, you're not immediately drawn to this image, this theme, this web of ideas throughout the Bible? These early Christians, followers of Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate one, the one God sent forth as the final son who would be put on the mountain of Zion. His anointed, chosen Messiah. That one. Jesus Christ. Do you realize that more usages of Psalm 2 to Jesus Christ than almost any other psalm? The other one's Psalm 110. But Psalm 2 is used again and again and again to say, my anointed son is Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, we're told, This is my beloved son, my son whom I have chosen, put on my holy hill. And we know that it was through his death, through his words of self-sacrificial love, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I pray that you would forgive them. Those beautiful, loving words are the very thing that we mean when we look at verse 10 and say, surely the wrath of man will be turned into praise to you, God. The peoples raged against Jesus. They shouted. They roared. Crucify him, crucify him. But little did they know that when we looked down in a different kind of den, in the rubble of Jesus' body being buried into a ground and a stone being rolled over it, up from the grave he would arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And then, a victor over the dark domain, he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Do you get the point? Just like the way our psalm begins, with a a series of psalms questioning, where have you been, God? Where are you? I look and I see the empty tomb, not the stone rolled over the grave. He's in this. So many of us need to be reminded that whether we're on Good Friday or Holy Saturday, it looks dark, literally, The sun's blackened, it's dark, Jesus has died, all of your hopes seem vanished. Every promise that you thought that this would be your Messiah, your one that would deliver and save you, it's vanished. There's a certain perspective on Friday and Saturday, that holy passion week. But everything changes Easter Sunday, doesn't it? He arose, he defeated death. So is he in it even when you look at the grave? When you look at the last breath of life, when you're in a funeral, can you say, he's in this? He's in Judah. He's in destruction. Not, just to clarify, not in the sense that he's wanting, desiring, loving evil. Verse 3 made that completely clear. His presence puts an end to death. He's in it in a different kind of way. He's in it to bring about the ultimate reversal and removal of every weapon of war namely death itself. And he did that 
when he sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our cross for our sins. And then he rose and he roared and he declared himself as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit so that many of us in this room are here today specifically because we have already bowed the knee to Jesus. We have already bended over our backs and said, you are worthy, oh God. Who is worthy? Is anyone worthy? This is where the book of Revelation comes in, in Revelation chapter 5. The lamb who was slain is none other than the lion of Judah, the conquering king. They're not two different figures. They're the same God of the scriptures. And this is the reason to bow the knee and bend the back. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I turn your attention to verse 11. Let all around him bring tribute. And it's the word that's specifically mentioned to those who are not believers of God. The word gift there is general in English, but it's a specific word for those that would come and turn to the God of Yahweh, who would repent of their sins and forsake all of their other, their gods and idols, Baal worship. And I would call out to you to say the same thing. Is there a more beautiful, more loving, more mighty, more holy, just, and glorious God, like verse 4 says? Shiny are you, glorious and majestic are you. Is there really another agenda, another philosophy, another worldview that has at its center self-sacrificial love? That's Christianity. Self-sacrificial love in the face of the raging wrath of humans where God brings about justice for sin and mercy to sinners. There's mercy for you at the cross. Turn from sin. Turn from all of the other pagan gods, world philosophies. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For as we were told in Philippians chapter 2, This one who did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Not just any servant, a human slave. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death, the worst kind of death, death on a cross. And therefore, on the basis of that raging wrath of humans to kill and crucify an innocent man, God highly exalted him. And gave him the name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. It is our aim at this church to get in a regular posture of bended knee. Bended back. And saying, Jesus Christ, you are worthy. Let's do that now as we conclude our time in prayer. And taking the Lord's Supper. And singing songs together.